0: I love the line, we don't sing this verse too often in Amazing Grace, uh, but the line in it that says, his word our hope secures. Isn't that a great thought as we approach the word of God, that it binds us in, it secures our hope as we're looking at the Lord's Supper, which is a sign and a seal, it secures the benefits that Christ has uh, won for us and earned for us. As we worship the Lord, turning to his word this morning, let's offer up this prayer, seeking to depend on him, having him open our minds and our hearts to his glory found in the word. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand, see the clear sense, know how to apply, know the significance of your word for our lives, both individually and corporately. When we prayed our prayer of invocation earlier, we had mentioned that you were the object of our worship. So this time, so often, can be just an academic time. Help us to recognize we are worshiping you in the Word. May our hearts be engaged in declaring your glory. So even as we go over these things, may you be the object of our worship and the audience of our worship that this is not just a mere teaching time. Teaching is included. But this is a time where you, through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, are speaking to us. Father, I'm humbled and reminded that not only am I called to deliver this word, but I'm worshiping myself, and that uh, I myself am hearing this word and being challenged by it. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us all to declare your glory and adore your name in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm glad Richard gave you a break, had you sit down for that last hymn, because guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him and wherever he enters say to the master of the house the teacher says where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover and when it was evening he came with the twelve and as they were reclining a table and eating Jesus said truly I say to you one of you will betray me this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this cu- this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves you. You may be seated. Part of Evie's testimony of what the Lord used to bring her uh, to himself was a dinner that she attended, given by her Sunday school teacher when she was in the third grade. So this was her third grade Sunday school class at the United Methodist Church in Pennsylvania. And when we were first dating, we were sharing, kind of getting to know each other and doing all that, and uh, she was telling me about herself, I was telling her about myself, and she was telling me about this dinner that folk, that this lady gave, and she said it was the most tremendous dinner. The lady, the Sunday school teacher, and she probably remembers her name, I have to admit, don't remember her name. Don't tell Evie, I have forgotten that detail. Uh, but she brought out her best china, fine linens, had the tablecloth spread over this table, with all these eight- and nine-year-olds sitting around the table. An extravagant show of hospitality, generosity and love and Evie recalls it was used by the Lord to show his extravagant love and over the top generosity, Evie I remember she conveyed to me, had the thought if this woman was willing to go kind of this extra mile to put out, I mean you know it's, it'd be great, Sunday school teachers let me tell you, you want to take the kids to McDonald's that's pretty awesome Okay, not a bad thing But Evie was going, if this Sunday school teacher would break out the best china, the best linens, have all the best stuff, and would do this trying to just show and demonstrate and illustrate the Lord's love and commitment and affection for his people, she thought, how much more does the Lord actually love us? And it led her to put her faith in Christ, to trust Christ at the age of nine. Now the Lord's Supper, and I am grateful to the session that they chose that we would celebrate so that you hear the word preached, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and we actually are going to get to partake, to commune with Christ at his table, because here's what the table is. This is Jesus Christ opening up his heart and feeding you with himself. This is the fulfillment of God's hospitality. This is extravagant love where God is inviting us To taste and see that he is good. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons, and I know, and I'm not trying to criticize other churches here and stuff. There are other churches that will do dramatic events and have drama and stuff. One of the reasons we choose not to do that, and I don't don't think we need it, is you get all the drama you want right here in the supper. You get Paul said to the Galatians, before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. And I think he was referring to the supper. Because guess what? In a few minutes, when the elders offer you this and say, take and eat, you are taking Jesus Christ into yourself before your very eyes, before your physical senses, you get to smell it, you get to taste it, you get to feel it. Your entire self is engaged over God's extravagant love. Ronald Wallace is a theologian who wrote about John Calvin's doctrine of the word and the sacrament. And what many people do not know is the utter, utter high view Calvin had of the sacrament. Calvin himself said that the sacrament ought to be given every time that the word is preached. And listen to what Calvin wrote about the Lord's Supper. He said, the whole Christ is really given in the sacrament. Since the gift in the sacrament is the whole Christ, there is given along with him those benefits that he has won for his people through his death and resurrection. Thus through our participation in the body of Christ through the supper there flows to us righteousness, forgiveness, sanctification, indeed all the blessings that are that are the fruit of his death for the Lord's supper is in figure not only a participation in his body but also in his death. It is a mirror In which we may contemplate Jesus Christ crucified to take away our offenses and raised again to deliver us from corruption. Last week we began to take a look at this passage in Mark's Gospel, the narrative in Mark chapter 14, where the Lord's Supper is instituted. You'll also find it in Matthew chapter 26, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11. And last week we focused on it in a sense of the historical context. How the Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of the Passover. And we're going to look at the Passover meal. Today, the new sacrament is linked with the central element in that Pascal meal. And this morning, we're returning to this passage, Mark chapter 14. Our focus is going to be primarily the words of institution Jesus gives in verses 22 through 25. And we want to basically explore it from two perspectives and look at two things. We want to look at what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? And what is the significance for us of the Lord's Supper? In other words, what are some practical lessons that we can derive when we partake? When we pr- Listen to Calvin's word, when we participate in Jesus's death, when we participate in Christ, what are some lessons that we can learn? Okay, first of all, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Look with me at verse 22. All right, verse 22 begins with the words, as they were eating. What were they eating? They were eating the Passover meal. The meal that in the earlier part of the passage, and I'm not necessarily going through every part of that, but that's where Jesus gives his disciples the instructions. He sends two of them into the city. He tells them exactly where they'll find a house. When you go into that house, the master of that house is going to have a room ready for you, the upper room. If you're looking at other gospel accounts, this would be the upper room where John chapters 14 to 17, Jesus gives his extended teaching, his extended discourse, just prior to his betrayal, trial, and crucifixion that is to begin on that very night. I'm indebted to commentaries, and it's particular to one commentary who gives a lot of the history, and I'm going to share some of this. The commentator's name is William Lane, and so I'm indebted to him for much of the history behind the supper. What the elements in the meal meant, in other words, their interpretation, was a fixed part of the Passover liturgy that they would do every year as they celebrate the Passover. Here you have Jesus as the head of the household, as the host of the meal. Now, you do recognize that Paul, for instance, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said, and God put all things under Jesus' feet, and he gave him, the him being Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Jesus is our head. He guides us. He leads us. He empowers us. That's why we are dependent upon for everything for him. And he's the head of our household, and he is also the host of this meal. He's the host of the supper. He gathers us to himself, he feeds us with himself, and he is the one who spreads his table. And commentators remind us that at first, when Jesus lifted the platter, the very first thing that would happen, and remember earlier on, and so I'm rever- referring to some of the things they talked about as they were reclining at table, that'd be the typical way they would enjoy fellowship. They'd all be reclining, kind of with hand on elbow, feet out, reclining at the table. They're relaxing together. They're enjoying a meal in the ancient Near Eastern world. And that ancient world was fellowship. It was communion. That's why this supper is a relational event. And we learn that when Jesus okay, would lift the platter of unleavened bread, he more than likely, speaking what was the common language of the day for them, would have been Aramaic. He knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, but he spoke in Aramaic. The beginning of the formula that's prescribed in the liturgy, this is the bread of the affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come. And let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Listen to those words. Let everyone who hungers come. Let everyone who is needy... Do you know who this meal is for? This meal is not for the upright. This meal is not for the holy of holies. This meal is not for those who have their act together and don't need Jesus. This meal is for the spiritually hungry and thirsty. Those who know they have no forgiveness, no meaning, no rest, no purpose, apart from and outside from Jesus Christ. As Isaiah prophesied and gave this invitation 700 years before the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, he said, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, what does it mean to have no money? It means you're bankrupt, you have no resources, you have nothing. You come empty with nothing in your hand. And the invitation is take, buy, and eat. Do not offer Jesus your own righteousness like you have something. Do not offer Jesus your morality. Do not offer Jesus... Come, buy, and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And what are we to do? See, this meal is for the spiritually hungry and, and needy. In the context of this, everything, every element of this meal would be to remind them of their context, their experience in bondage. You know, I refer back and forth sometimes to some of the other narratives and uh, the recording of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul is the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage we typically read when we give the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul is the one who said, do this in remembrance of me. He recalled those words of Jesus. Part of their remembering... And part of our remembering is the experience and travail while in Egypt. For them, literally, because the Exodus would have been their model and their paradigm of salvation. So part of the remembering is remember your bondage. Remember your slavery, as well as your liberation and freedom. And as a matter of fact, the elements of the meal were all designed to be reminders of this. So for example as part of the meal along with the unleavened bread they'd have bitter herbs reminding them of the bitterness of their bondage the bitterness of their travail. They would also have stewed fruit that would have the consistency and color of clay reminding them of their time when they made bricks as slaves. And of course what would be the main course of the meal would be the lamb the pascal lamb reminding them of God's passing over Israel in the plague of death that befell Egypt. Again, commentators remind us, before the meal, the head of the household would take the bread, and he would bless it. Just Jesus said, took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And he gave these words. He said, part of the words that they would say is part of the liturgy. Mark doesn't recall, recall this for us, but part of the liturgy would be, praised be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth the head of the household would then take the bread and break it off piece by piece, giving it to each member of the family. And then Jesus does something that is real interesting. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he applies it to himself with the words, this is my body. Now what do those words mean? This is my body. These are some of the most disputed, controversial words in the history of the church as a matter of fact as we go through and I'll just highlight real briefly several of the views of what these words mean these were the words that pretty much even divided and split apart Martin Luther and John Calvin there are several different uh, views that are held historically of what these words this is my body means So, for example, the Roman Catholic Church conceives of the presence of Christ in the sacrament in a physical or literal sense. The church maintains that when the priest utters the formula, this is my body, bread and wine change into the actual body and blood of Christ. This view being primarily based on a literal interpretation of the words of institution is known as transubstantiation. Now, again, being as kind as I possibly can, we don't hold to that particular view. Now, the Lutheran view, it's a different view. Lutherans, so Martin Luther, rejected that view. But they had a different view. Their view was known as consubstantiation. And basically, their view, they substituted with this. They said that while the bread and wine remain what they are, they remain bread and wine, the whole person of Christ, body and blood, is present. And the prefix con can mean in, under, or along. So the Lutheran view would be that the person of Christ, body and blood, is present in, under, and alongside the elements. So in other words, that's why Luther said when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant it again. It was a literal view, this is my body. Again, we don't hold to that view. As I mentioned earlier, that's the view that's split apart, Luther and Calvin. Now there's another view. The Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli held to this. And I have to admit, this is probably... If I were to look at it, I haven't taken a statistical survey, I can't prove this, but I would sit there and say this is probably the view that influences what I would call modern evangelical uh, modern evangelicalism the most. Okay, And this view stresses the significance of the Lord's Supper merely as a memorial of what Christ did for sinners, and as an act of profession on the part of the communicant who has taken it. Calvin, though, took exception to this view. He took exception to Zwingli's view, along with the other views. Calvin taught, and this is the view that we would hold to, Calvin taught the spiritual but real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper through the Holy Spirit. Listen to the way Calvin, Wallace again records Calvin's views as follows. He says, but Calvin, with equal insistence, rejects any purely figurative interpretation of the words of institution, which might make the sacrament nothing more than an empty symbolic action. Jesus was not speaking in a purely figurative way when he instituted the supper. Calvin writes, there is a mystery of sacramental union here, indicated that lifts his language far above being legitimately called figurative without any qualification. Don't you love that? This is not empty symbolic action. Jesus Christ is communing with his hungry, thirsty, needy people. He is feeding you with himself. That's His forgiveness, His sanctification, His redemption, His wisdom, His righteousness. He is communicating these signs and sealing them to yourself. That is not an empty symbolic figurative action. That is real communion that is meant to strengthen and renew the believer. What is promised in this is Jesus' real personal presence. Dr. Lane says again, Jesus' first gift to the disciples was the pledge of his abiding presence with them in spite of his betrayal and death. This first word, this is my body, anticipates the resurrection and the real presence of the Lord at the celebration of the supper. What comes next? Look with me at verses 23 and 24. It says, And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five 25 tells us that he took the cup after supper. So in other words, you had the bread, you'd have the main meal, and then after supper, he took the cup. And again, commentators would remind us that the head of the household would once again rise from reclining, rise from his reclining position, and would speak to those present with the following words. Speak praises to our God to whom belongs what we have eaten. He would then with his right hand take what would at this point of the meal have been the third cup of wine, red wine mixed with water, pronounce a prayer of thanksgiving, and conclude with the following words. May the all-merciful one make us worthy of the days of the Messiah and of the life of the world to come. He brings the salvation of his king. He shows covenant faithfulness to his anointed, to David, and to his seed forever. He makes peace in the heavenly places. May he secure peace for us and for all Israel. And he would conclude with the words of response, and say you, and they would all respond, amen. Now, what do the words that Jesus utters, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, me? What Jesus is here doing is he's relating the cup of red wine to the renewal of the covenant between God and his people. If the first promise that's involved and in this is my body is his abiding presence, the promise here, the reference here, is to Jesus' blood shed in the context of covenant sacrifice. Jesus is saying what he does for his people is as their representative and substitute, he does what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus is doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. He is fulfilling the covenant. And he is fulfilling the covenant both in its positive demands, keeping all of the law of God, all of the stipulations of God, and in its negative, bringing the curses, mainly death, upon himself. That's the point of what Al read earlier from Isaiah chapter 53, the chastisement that brought us peace, was laid upon Him. He took in His own body, He took in His own self, the cursing of the covenant. And He earned for us, the blessing of the covenant. Now I'm going to say something, that may sound a little controversial to you, and let me make sure I give you the meaning. In a sense, we can say that we're saved by works. And in a sense, we can say that God's love is not unconditional, but conditional. And here's what I mean by that. We are very much saved by works. The works Jesus Christ did both in his life, keeping every demand down to every, as Matthew 5 says, jot and tittle. Of the law of God. Jesus performed. Jesus did. So that God loves us conditionally. Based on the condition of Jesus fulfilling the covenant. That God sees. This is what it means to be as we sang earlier. Dressed in righteousness alone. We come naked. He clothes us with his own righteousness. And he performed for us. The works of taking upon himself in his own person. The wages of sin is death. He took the curse of the covenant upon himself. So it's that in Christ, we are validated. In Christ, we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. Wouldn't you love to live life not having to prove yourself all the time? Not having to prove you're okay. Not having to prove you're all right. Not having to prove that you're important, that you're significant. You realize you don't have to prove it? Jesus has proven it for you? That Jesus has earned and performed and completed the works and the condition. And because of that, you are vindicated and you are validated in Christ. And that is being, you are communicating With Christ, and He's communicating those benefits to you, sealing them to your life and to your heart in this sacrament. I don't know about you. I need to rush to the supper. I don't feel good enough ever, and I need Jesus to be telling me I'm good enough in Christ. How about you? I need that validation. Don't we all? Don't we wish, remember I said last week, the Passover meal and the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is God's declaration. This is God's drama, the drama of of redemption. You are God's free people. Don't you want to just rush to the supper? Unfortunately, I'm not done yet. (laughs) What are some of the significant, just kind of a couple, real briefly, and I will be brief here, lessons that we can derive and learn from this have the meaning of his body his blood it's a participation it is a real communion with christ he is opening wide his heart and his home and himself and feeding you with himself what are some of the significant lessons we learn from that first of all we are participating remember i said this is covenant language we are participating in covenant renewal this is the significance of the word 1 Corinthians 11.24 says, do this in remembrance of me. See, I'm afraid we neglect, we overlook, we don't really define the biblical word remember very well. We think of remember and we too often think of it, we're too often trapped in our own English language. Remember is kind of like, where did I put the car keys again? <laughs> uh, where Eddie, Did you see where I laid down my glasses? I need to remember where I put, that's not the meaning here. The meaning here is that of covenant renewal. God feeding him with ourselves. So we remember the glories of redemption. You were meant to live out of one power. The power of the gospel. And so we are meant, this is meant to renew us in this. Jesus is promising us his presence, feeding us with himself to strengthen us, to renew us. Because guess what? I don't feel good enough today and I need to go to the gospel, guess what's going to happen tomorrow? See, forgetting is not just... It's not like I intellectually forgot what the words of the gospel is. Here's what forgetting in the Bible is. Forgetting is a willful suppression of the truth. You have the truth, and Jesus said the truth will set you free. Here's what your sinful nature does. It's like swimming in a pool. And you ever swim in a pool, and you take one of those balls, and you're trying to hold the ball down? And what is the ball trying to, trying to come up all the time and do that? That's what we do with the truth. We take the glorious truth of the gospel that Jesus validates us, and we suppress it. That's what it means to forget. And guess what? We suppress the truth all the time. We hide it. We avoid it. We escape. We run from it. We don't want to hear it. We resist it. Friends, you give your flesh way too much credit. The flesh will never, it's, the zebra not changing its stripes, the flesh will never change its characteristics. You will, willful, by your sinful nature, will always be looking to suppress the truth. God provides his means of grace, the word, prayer, the sacraments, and fellowship as a way to help us remember so that we would be renewed in the covenant. I don't know about you, that's a significant lesson, I think. Because guess what? This is why Calvin said the sacrament should be given every time the word was preached. And in Geneva, the word was preached every day. Covenant renewal is the first significant lesson. Second, look with me at verse 25. Here's the second significant lesson. Because verse 25 also provides us with something very important that I'm afraid I've overlooked or neglected at times. And I think we overlook and neglect Jesus says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What does this mean when Jesus says he will abstain from the fruit of the vine? The fruit of the vine means what? The wine that comes out of it. And Jesus says, I'm not going to take it until I take it. And he says, until that day. That day would be the day of consummation. The day of the completion of the kingdom of God. That which we are hastening and longing for by... As Revelation 22 says, we pray, come Lord Jesus. William Lane says what what this means here is Jesus confirms his promise of the inauguration of the new covenant with an oath. The oath is he will not partake of the festal cup until the meal was resumed and completed in the consummation. Forswearing feasting and wine, Jesus dedicated himself with a resolute will to accept the bitter cup of wrath offered to him by the Father. Yet there is here a clear anticipation of the Messianic banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb when the Passover fellowship with his followers, with his elect community, will be resumed in the kingdom of God. The cup from which Jesus abstained would have been the fourth which which ordinarily concluded the Passover meal. Dr. Lane reminds us, he says, the four cups of wine were interpreted in terms of God's fourfold promise that he gave in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus 6, the Lord says to Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Fourfold promise. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you and I will take you to be my people and I will be You're God. These promises. You are God's free people. You are bought with a price. I will redeem you. I will deliver you. You are God's free people. Not only free from slavery, but free to love. Free to come out of yourself and love God and love neighbor. And I will take you to myself. Do you hear how beautiful those words are? Have you ever felt just unloved and unwanted in your life? and want somebody to choose you, and take you, and want want you? Do you understand the glory of the gospel? That what God is promising in being a covenant, and then loving us so much that He would fulfill the conditions of the covenant, is He says, I am going to take you to myself. I want you. You are worthy of my wanting you, and I will take you to myself, and I will be your God. I belong to you, and you belong to me. Friends, do you see how beautiful that is? And such a significant lesson that Jesus takes the third cup, and what the third cup says, here's the blood of my covenant, and he says, I won't drink the fourth cup. You're about to have it, I won't drink it until kingdom come, the kingdom of God is consummated, and we resume this fellowship together in glory. Which means one of the other significant lessons that we're reminded of in the Lord's Supper is that it's a taste of glory, and it's just a taste. It's a taste of the banquet meal where we get, a, in a sense, the appetizer now, a piece of the pie now, where we're getting the utter smorgasbord. The four billion gazillion course meal at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're coming. And what do we do in the in-between times? We wait. We long. We lament. We anticipate. We cry out with the Apostle John. Come, Lord Jesus. We lament with David. How long, O Lord? We pray with David. I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Friends, one of the other significant lessons that we need to learn is the discipline of being still and waiting. We are so quick and so busy to have all the answers, to fix things. We, want, we see problems and we go, I have a certain answer, when sometimes the gospel answer is lament. Be sad. Come alongside. I don't know how many of you are reading the Spruce Creek Bible reading, but we're going through the book of Job. And isn't it amazing? Job calls his friends miserable comforters. How'd you like to be Bildad the shoe height? And here you're a miserable comforter. You know why they're miserable comforters? They think they have all the answers. When they were called to enter in with compassion and empathy and come alongside their brother who's dying in a pile. The Lord's Supper teaches us to wait and lament. Sadness is part of the Christian life. The Lord's Supper teaches us this when Jesus takes an oath to wait. He says, I'll resume the cup of wine when we take it together in glory. I think that's a significant lesson. We're about to partake. Remember your Egypt. We're so tempted to always go back to our Egypt. You know why we're tempted to go back to our Egypt? It's familiar. I, I know for me, things like having the approval of others, being liked by others, and taking control. That's Egypt for me. I'm like, I know what that feels like. That's familiar. I'll go to Egypt. I may not like slavery, but familiar is pretty good. So I run to that. Remember, though, the burden that is. Remember, God's hand may be upon you as in the heat of summer. Remember that. And then remember the liberation and the freedom of knowing you're validated in Christ. You're proven in Christ. Live out of control. It's okay. I know it's scary. But Jesus has you. His death and his resurrection prove it. Let's pray. Father, may we rush to the supper... As the elders pass out these elements, they are offering the gospel. The bread will be broken, it will be offered, and your invitation to us is take and eat. And if we have taken you, may we take and eat. It's only if we have not taken you. And I pray that if we have not taken you, that today may be the day of salvation. That today would be the day where we would simply say, Father, I want to take Jesus. Please have me and hold me and accept me because of what Jesus has done. It doesn't have to be any more difficult than that. I pray, Father, though, that you would be so pleased to hold us close and hold us tight and show us yourself in this sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.